0: The following sermon is brought to you by thepreachersvault.com, bringing old-time preaching to a new generation. We have come with open hearts. Oh, let the ancient words impart. We've come to worship God. God deserves with our worship. Open oh, he created us. We're to give our lives to Him, and we ought to come to every service in order to worship the God of Heaven because of everything that He's done for us. I know you're glad even tonight to have that opportunity to come so that we can adore God, bring our lives prostrate before His throne, kiss toward Him and fellowship one with another and in fellowship with the great God, who loved us so much he sent his Son, Jesus, to suffer and die for us. I mentioned this morning that tonight I want to talk about another one of the chapters that we've been studying in the early chapters of the book of Acts. Tonight I'm going to talk about a chapter with which you're all familiar, the second chapter of the book of Acts. I have no fear in talking about this chapter that we'll cover some things that you already know because the Apostle Peter said that we need to be reminded from time to time of certain things. I remember a number of years ago I heard Brother Gus Nichols speak on one occasion and he mentioned the fact he was speaking on the second chapter of the book of Acts. And he said, I have over 200 sermons on the second chapter of the book of Acts. And I thought, boy, that's a lot. I didn't even have a 100 sermons at that time. let alone 200 sermons on the second chapter of the book of Acts. But I believe that it would be quite easy to have 200 sermons on the second chapter of the book of Acts and not fathom all that's found in that chapter. The second chapter of the book of Acts is the hub of the Bible. Everything that there is in Genesis 1-1 pointing down to the second chapter of the book of Acts looks toward that occasion. Everything that there is to the book of Revelation, the 22nd chapter of the book of Revelation, the last verse, goes back and looks back to that great chapter in the book of Acts. The Apostle Peter, referring to it in the 10th chapter of the book of Acts, said that it was the beginning and the supreme significance to everything that there is found in the Bible. Tonight, I want to approach that chapter from a little bit different standpoint from what we normally do, although I may mention some things in connection with some of the things that are found in it. But I don't want to study it verse by verse tonight. But I want to notice we use some great principles that are found in the second chapter of the book of Acts. In the first place, let me suggest to you that Acts 2 says, Once and for all, God cares. Have you ever felt as if no one cared? In the Psalms, if you turn with me to the 142nd Psalm, the psalmist in verse 4 said, I looked on my right hand and beheld, there was no man that would know me, refuge failed me, no man cared for my soul. Man sinned in the garden in the third chapter of the book of Genesis. Man had as the consequence of that sin separation from God. But the second chapter of the book of Acts says that no matter what circumstances we find ourselves in, God cares. The first time in the second chapter of the book of Acts you have redemption that has been promised unfolded. And men can receive the forgiveness of their past sins. Anytime that we feel that no man cares or that we are alone, we ought to look to the second chapter of the book of Acts to say, there's one who loves me. There's one who cares. God cares. John 3.16, the account says, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish, but have life everlasting. Basically, that's the announcement made in the second chapter of the book of Acts. Here are people who crucified the very Son of God. Verse 22, Peter said that they by wicked hands had crucified and slain God's Son. But Peter says, God loves you. While we were yet in sin, Christ died for us, Romans 5. And verse eight, God cares. God's concerned about us. We know that we're sure that we know because of what's found in the second chapter of the book of Acts that God is always concerned. That He always cares. We can't say like the psalmist, "No man cared for my soul," for God cares. In the eighth chapter of the book of Romans. You'll find a beautiful account where the Apostle Paul said, beginning with verse 31, What shall we say to those things? If God be for us, who can be against us? He that spared not his own Son, but delivered him up from, for us all, how shall he not with him also, freely give us all things? Who can lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It's God that justifies. Who is he that condemneth? It is Christ that died. Yea, brother, is risen again, who is at the right hand of God also to make intercession for us, who can separate us from the love of Christ, tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword, as it is written for His sake, we are killed all the day long. We are counted as sheep to the slaughter. Nay, in all these things we are more than conquerors through Him that loved us. For I am persuaded neither death nor life nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. What makes the difference? And the lives of the apostles who in the latter chapters of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John flee in the presence of adversity to find them united and bold, as we saw this morning in the fourth chapter of the book of Acts. God cares, and they know that they know that they're sure that they know. God cares. That's what Peter said in that sermon. God loved you. He sent Jesus to die for you. God resurrected His Son so that you could be saved. God Care. The second place, the second chapter of the book of Acts, we learn of God's desire to have fellowship with us. You know, when sin entered into the world in the third chapter of the book of Genesis, fellowship was separated from God. That's what Isaiah 59 verses 1 and 2 say. That sin separates fellowship from God. Adam and Eve hid themselves from God. They had formerly walked with God hand in hand, if you will, in the cool of the day. But now they are separated from God because of sin. In the book of Habakkuk, in the first chapter of the book of Habakkuk, verse 13, it says that the Lord's eyes cannot look upon evil. Sin cannot be in the presence of God. But God desired man's fellowship. In Genesis 3 and verse 15, you have the first promise, the indication of how much God desired the fellowship of man. He desired the fellowship of man so much that He was willing for Jesus, His only begotten Son to die on the cross, that we might be in fellowship with God. The second chapter of the book of Acts shows that God desires my fellowship. Here are those who are in sin. And did you know that there's none of us who cannot be in the same place as these were? Who by wicked hands have crucified and slain the Son of God. Jesus died for sin. That's what John one twenty nine says. There are no sins that are worse than other sins. Sin caused Jesus to have to die on the cross. Whose sin? My sin put Him there. He died for me. He bore my iniquities. I'm separated from God because of sin. Romans 3.23, Romans 3.10-12. 3, 3. God wants my fellowship. God wants me to be with Him throughout all eternity. The second chapter of the book of Acts shows me how much God desires me to be in His presence. The question is, do I want to be in His fellowship? Sin has separated me and God. Do I want to apply the cleansing blood of Jesus so that I can be in fellowship with God? Acts 2 shows how much God desires to be with me. Turn with me to the Twenty second chapter of the book of Revelation. You see a beautiful picture in the twenty second chapter of Revelation of the fellowship that had been severed in paradise again, joined. Fellowship between man and God. And he showed me a pure river of the water of life, clear as crystal. Proceeding out of the throne of God and of the Lamb, and in the midst of the street of it, on either side of the river was the tree of life. And it bears twelve manners of fruits, and yielded a fruit every month, and the leaves of the tree with the healing of nations. And there should be no more curse, but the throne of God and his Lamb shall be in it, and his servants shall serve him. Acts 2 says, God wants my fellowship. God wants me in his presence. He sent Jesus to suffer and die so that I could be in fellowship with him. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine in the fellowship, in the breaking of bread, and in prayer. God wants me in his fellowship. And there was added unto them that day about 3,000 souls. That's what the Lord's church is. Praising God and having favor with all the people and the Lord added unto the church daily. Such it should be so. One way that the Greek word ecclesia is translated one meaning of it is the assembly. It's the assembly of those who are in fellowship with God. Those who have been called out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of the dear Son of God to be separated to be in fellowship with God. God loved me so much, He sent Jesus because He wanted me in His fellowship. In the third place, I do not believe that you can help but in reading the second chapter of the book of Acts, but learn the great lesson, God is a promise keeping God. I mentioned a minute ago in the third chapter of the book of Genesis in verse 15, you have the first promise given concerning redemption. The account says in verse 15, I will put enmity between thee and the woman and between thy seed and her seed, and it shall bruise thy head and thy shall bruise his heel. Man has sinned. Man is the one who disrupted that beautiful fellowship that he enjoyed with God because of sin. And God is the one who set about to restore that fellowship with man. God said, I'm going to restore that fellowship. I'm going to restore that fellowship by the cross. That's what Genesis 3 and 15 is talking about. Years go by. Sacrifices are offered pointing toward that occasion. And yet the cross has not occurred. Man is not in full fellowship with God. Man is still in sin. The pains of conscience cannot be solved. One's conscience gnaws within himself. That's what the word conscience means. A gnawing with oneself. The only way that one's conscience can be cleansed and through the blood of Jesus. In Hebrews 8 12, the account says, and their sins and their iniquities will I remember no more. God made a promise. In Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 4, he extends that promise. And he says, That in the seed of Abraham shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. Is God going to keep that promise? Will that promise be fulfilled? You come down to the book of Exodus. The children of Israel are going to be the ones to whom the seed will come. They're in Egyptian bondage. God separates them from Egyptian bondage. Separates them from other nations. So that they'll be a kingdom of priests. So that they will be pure. From which the seed would come. Time goes on. They commit sin. They go away first into Assyrian and then into Babylonian captivity. Will God keep His promise? Malachi chapter 4 ends in a curse. 400 years pass. There's no word from God. Has God forgotten? God said... I'm going to arrange a way that you can be saved. Will God do what he said? Is God a promise-keeping God? Look at the way that men look at God and his promises. Turn with me to the book of 2 Peter. The third chapter of the book of 2 Peter. Peter says, this is the second epistle that I write unto you, beloved, both by way of stirring up your pure mind, by way of remembrance that it might be mine for the words that were spoken by the holy prophets and by the commandment of us, the apostles of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Knowing this first, that there shall come in the last days scoffers walking after their own lust and saying, Where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, things continue as they were from the beginning of creation." Is God going to do what he said he'll do? Can I be saved? For they were willingly ignorant of, that by the word of God the heavens were abode, the earth standing out of the water and in the water, whereby the world that then was, being overflowed with water, perished. But the heavens and the earth, which are now by the same word are kept in store, preserved in the fire against the dead judgment of perdition and ungodly men. But, beloved, be not ignorant of this one thing. That one day is with the Lord is a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. Now, underscore it the Lord is not slack concerning his promises, some men count slackness, but is long suffering towards usward, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Will God keep his promises? 1 Peter 1 and verse 4 says, He's granted unto us exceeding great and precious promises. Acts 2 says, yes. God always does what God says God's going to do. The book of 2 Corinthians, in the first chapter of that book, in verse 20, you find that the apostle Paul said, for all the promises of God are in him, yea, and in him, amen, under the glory of God by us." Now, if I were going to paraphrase that passage, I'd do it this way. All the promises of God are in him, yes. When God said it, it'll be that way. All the promises of God are in him, yes, and in him, so be it. That's what amen means. It will come to pass. When God said it, you can bank on it. All you've got to do is look at the second chapter of the book of Acts to understand that God's going to do what God said He would do. Now, how important is that? i tell you how important it is. I wouldn't be here tonight if it wasn't like that. If I didn't know that I knew that I knew that I knew that I could depend on the promises of God, I'd tear my Bible up and throw it away and go live like a heathen. Might as well. If there's ever one of God's promises fail, then you can't trust any of them. But when God said it, so be it. It'll be that way. Now how important is that? Turn to First Peter chapter 1. three. blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His abundant mercy hath begotten us again into a lively hope by the resurrection of Christ from the dead. Now that's the theme of the sermon Peter preached, to an inheritance incorruptible, undefiled, that fadeth not away, reserved in heaven for you. Just as sure as Acts 2 is in there. When the Lord said, there is an inheritance, undefiled, that fadeth not away, for his elect, for those who have obeyed the gospel, you can know that you know that you know it's there and it's waiting. Acts 2 stands forever to say to me and to say to you, Christ came forth from the grave and I can be sure that I can trust the promises that God's made. In the fourth place, Acts 2 stands forever to say that I am going to be resurrected from the dead. Jesus was. The argument that the Apostle Peter makes in the second chapter of the book of Acts is, that this same Jesus whom ye crucified, the Lord hath raised up. He did not remain in the grave, but He came forth victorious over the grave. What does that mean? That means there's victory for me as a Christian. That means that I too am going to be raised from the dead. In 1 Corinthians 15.24, Paul expresses it this way, that Christ is the first fruit of the resurrection. What does the first fruits mean? The first fruit always signified that there would be a general harvest that would follow. It signified that the crop was not yet complete, but that there would be a general harvest. When Jesus came forth from the grave, it signified that there would be a general harvest. It surely is Acts 2 in the Bible. I can know there's going to be a resurrection and a judgment. In Acts 17 verses 30 and 31, the account says, At times of this ignorance God winked at or overlooked. But now he commandeth all men everywhere to repent, insomuch as he hath appointed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness by that man whom he hath ordained, whereof he hath given assurance unto all men and that he raised him from the dead. Surely as Acts 2 is in there, there's a resurrection, and there's a judgment. Did you know to a faithful Christian there's no beautiful, more beautiful day that there will ever be than the day of judgment? To a faithful Christian. The day of judgment is a day that we ought to anticipate. It's a day of reward. Acts 2 stands forever to say that if you obey the gospel and live a steadfast, faithful life like Acts 2.42 talks about, that you can anticipate a day of reward. He's going to come and He's going to bring our reward. Revelation chapter 22. Behold, I come quickly and my reward is with me to give every man according as his work shall be. 22. 20. God's coming to reward those who are faithful. In Matthew 10, Jesus said that there will not even be a cup of cold water that's given in his name only, not just some big something but even a cup of cold water, given in his name only, that will in any wise lose its reward. Paul said in 2 Timothy chapter 4, beginning with verse 6, I have fought a good fight, I have kept the faith, I have finished the course, Henceforth I have laid up for me the crown of righteousness which the Lord the righteous judge shall give unto me in that day. Now underscore this phrase, and not unto me only, but unto all them that love his appearing. Acts 2 stands forever to say that you'll be resurrected. You'll go to judgment. You will receive your reward. You'll receive your crown you'll receive your victory. That's what New Testament Christianity is all about. Living as a winner. Living as one who has lived the most abundant life on this earth and abundantly entrance shall be richly ministered unto you unto that everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Acts 2 stands forever to say that that will be the case and the life of a faithful child of God. But then again, the second chapter of the book of Acts presents the Christian life as a life of not only fellowship with God, but a life of fellowship with those Christians who are here on this earth. That's the text that I had read a moment ago in the second chapter of the book of Acts. You find beginning with verse 41 that 3,000 people obeyed the simple New Testament gospel. And they were added together. They were added unto them. They were added unto the church. And the account said that they continued steadfastly. Underscore the word they. There's unity even in the word they. They continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine, and the fellowship, and the breaking of bread, and in prayers. And fear came upon every soul. After many wonders and signs done by the apostles, and all that believed were together, had all things common. They sold their possessions and parted them to all men as every man had need. They continued daily with one accord in the temple, breaking bread from house to house, and did eat meat with gladness and singless heart, praising God and having faith with all the people. And the Lord added them to the church daily, such as should be so. I want to ask you something, brethren, tonight. How would you like to be a member of a congregation like the congregation that's described in Acts 2, beginning verse 41? Have you ever thought about what it would be like to be with brethren that... Continue steadfastly, that are interested in the truth and the teaching of the gospel, that are interested in the joint participation of the fellowship and the work of the Lord, and everyone doing what he or she can so that God's cause will be carried to the world as well, who like to observe the Lord's Supper because of the reminder that Christ died for them, the anticipation of their own resurrected body who pray for one another in their daily life, who indeed realize the value that there is in reverential fear. That's all in respect for God's Word. That's what Acts 2.43 is talking about. And who are together as one in God's family. You know that's what he's talking about in these verses. When we obey the gospel, Galatians 3:26 through 29 points out, we become simple New Testament Christians. And there are no distinctions within the body of Christ. But everyone stands on the same plane. They're in God's family. They are God's people. They are a habitation for God. First Timothy 3.15 says that they're the household of God that they are indeed a part of God's family. Does that not describe the beautiful relationship that you have here? These continued steadfastly daily in one accord, interested in studying God's Word in the temple. and Daily breaking bread from house to house, they did eat meat with gladness and singleness of heart. I think we need to think very seriously about the attitude that there were in the early church. The early church had a great love, one for another's brethren. The early church continued together. They had things in common that the world did not have. They'd been called out of the world of darkness. They realized their common malady, sin. They had used the blood of Christ to receive the forgiveness of that common malady and they've entered into a common fellowship. They're now New Testament Christians. They're serving and working side by side, shoulder by shoulder. I think that's why it says what it does as we read this morning in the fourth chapter of the book of Acts when Peter and John had been called before the Sanhedrin that they went under their own company. Birds of a feather flock together. Where else would they go? they were interested in reporting to their family, God said, the things that had befallen them, so that they could receive strength one from another. The second chapter of the book of Acts is an important chapter. It deserves a great deal of our attention and a great deal of our study. And finally, let me suggest to you that the second chapter of the book of Acts suggests that the only means of one obeying the gospel is contained Therein, there is no other. There's no way that we can get around what's in Acts 2. When people realized they were in sin and they cried out, Men and brethren, what shall we do? Peter said, Repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of your sins. That's it. And there is no other way. There are not many ways to heaven. There's only one the way that was announced by the Apostle Peter. Back in the book of Matthew, in the 16th chapter of the book of Matthew, in verse 19, the Lord said to Peter, and Matthew 18, 18 points out that he made the same statement to the other apostles. Thou were given to thee the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatsoever thou shalt bind on earth shall have already been bound in heaven. And whatsoever thou shalt loose on earth shall have already been loosed in heaven. When those men stood up on that first Pentecost after the resurrection of Jesus, May the 28th, 9 o'clock, A.D. 30, they proclaimed that gospel sermon on that occasion. There's no way that men can circumvent what they say. If you turn with me to the 10th chapter of the book of John, you find these words recorded. Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that entereth not by the door unto the sheep follow, but pineth in some other way, the same as a thief and a robber. He that entereth in by the door of the shepherd of the sheep, to him the porter openeth, and the sheep hear his voice, and he calleth his own sheep by name, and leadeth them out. And when he putteth forth his own sheep, he goeth before them, and his sheep follow him, for they know his voice. And a stranger they will not follow, but will flee from him. But they know not the voice of strangers. This parable spake Jesus unto them, but they understood not what things there were which he spake unto them. And then said Jesus unto them, Barely, barely, I say unto you, I am the door of the sheep. And all that ever came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep will not hear them. I am the door, and by me, if any man enter in, he shall be saved and go in and out and find pasture. Jesus allowed the apostles to open the door to the sheepfold. They bound and loose God's law. When Peter said, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the mission of sins," there's no other way. To try to go in any other way is to try to enter as a robber and to bring God's wrath and judgment upon us. If you're not a Christian tonight, you're lost. I don't think you've read the second chapter of the book of Acts without understanding how serious it is to be lost. The tragic thing in Acts 2 is that only 3,000 people responded to God's grace and obeyed the simple gospel multitudes of men who stood there heard the preaching of Peter and the other apostles rejected that message. And when they did, they rejected the only means of salvation. If you're here tonight and not a Christian, if you reject this message, it may be the last opportunity you'll ever have to obey God. We don't have a perpetual relief on life. We may not be alive tomorrow. One thing sure and certain is surely as Acts 2 is there, there'll be a resurrection and a judgment. And one of that man who faces God outside of Christ. Jesus said, He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. Why not do that tonight while together we stand and sing?